Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Without dirt, there could never have been cities or great kings. So claimed the people of Babylon, who knew full well that their civilization had been fashioned out of mud. Back in the beginning, when all the earth had been ocean, Lord Marduk, king of the gods, had built a raft of reeds, covered it with dust, mingled it with water to form a primordial slime, and out of this raised a home for himself, the Esagila, the first building in the world. And this could still be seen eons later, standing in the heart of Babylon. But it had needed no temple to make the Babylonians appreciate what could be done with earth and water. They knew it in their bones. I will take blood, Marduk had announced in the (laughs) earliest days of the world. And I will sculpt flesh. And I will form the first man. So So that was the former vampire novelist, Tom Holland. (laughs) Uh, dominating I, I, book, Persian I, I, fire talking about Babylon well when I wrote that I had no idea that Marduk had actually sounded like Winston Churchill but um, that wasn't Churchill at all that was that was like that I was will take of... mud I will take blood <laughs> I will make humanity that was the that was the king of the gods what are you talking about so Tom you've wanted to do Babylon since we first talked about doing this podcast haven't you yeah, yeah I really have to, to many people I would say speaking as a sort of modernist um, Babylon is is impossibly ancient, unknowable, exotic, confusing. But romantic, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, romantic, exactly. Well, romantic, but also it has this kind of sinister edge, doesn't it? Because the yeah. word Babylon for you know centuries in Christianity and afterwards took on this sort of meaning of corruption, I would say, and evil, didn't it? Yes, and it still obviously has that right into the present day with Rastafarianism. Um, I, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do Babylon right from the beginning, is that um, Babylon, in a sense, is the heir of of the birth of civilization. So Babylonians saw themselves as the heirs of of Uruk and Ur and these very, very early cities. Yeah. Um, But I think if you're, if you're, so the kind of child I was obsessed by, um, you know, Greek history and by the Bible, Babylon featured in both. So I would have picture books about Greek history and they'd be, yeah. you know, you'd see uh, portrayals of the Ishtar Gate and um, the ziggurats and all these kind of incredible monuments. And they would be done in a kind of heroic way. You'd be expected to kind of admire the dazzle and the splendor of it. Yeah. And then there'd be an illustrated Bible and you'd have, you know, the Judeans weeping by the rivers of Babylon. And yeah. there it would be sinister. And I think it's that mix of, of the glamorous and the sinister that right from my childhood has kind of haunted me. And so that's why, you know, you read that <laughs> very purple passage of prose. Yeah. Um, I, 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 find, I find it very difficult to, to even think about uh, Babylon and not kind of lurch into, into the vague, a vague hint of purple. Right. So, uh, so that's... <laughs> Tom, there's but, no need to. You, you sound like you're making excuses now. Which is, no, it, I'm not. Never, I, I, I'm do. not, because I think that, that that sense is actually bred of the city itself, because... Um, the city had a kind of consciousness of itself as the being Babylonians the center of the world would approve of your prose is what you're saying. I, I think they, they would, I think they would, they would appreciate it. And I think they would absolutely, they'd probably be offended that it's taken us this long to do an episode yeah. on. Uh, so Babylon is impossibly old. And I think what we should do is, well, I think we both think 
we will come back to the early, the really early stuff in a, in another episode. But let's re- concentrate now on the most famous period of Babylonian history, the most colourful, the most well-chronicled, and that's the period from Nebuchadnezzar onwards. So Babylon at that point is about, what, more than a 1,000 years old? Um, yeah, it's probably fa- founded around um, 1900 BC, uh, and the Esagila, which was mentioned in the Magnificent uh, opening that you read um, magnificent that that seems to date back to to about that time so so the roots in that sense the roots of, of babylon are, are very venerable but there's a complication which is that um babylon for a long period has had this terrifying neighbor called assyria um and if you imagine mesopotamia as a kind of a bottle um assyria is like the kind of angry hornet <laughs> trapped yeah. inside the bottle um and at one point um uh, an Assyrian king, Sennacherib, had actually flattened Babylon completely, presumably wiping out the Esagila as well. So um, the great city that, that you know, you, you shut your eyes, you imagine um, the, the, the blue and gold bricks, the, uh, the, the, the incredible monuments, all that kind of stuff. This has been rebuilt um, on the kind of models that pre-existed. But, but Relatively speaking, Babylon in that sense is both a very ancient and quite a modern city. And as you say, the person who is responsible for this great process of construction um, is Nebuchadnezzar. And just for those people who don't know, so Babylon is in modern day Iraq. It's south yeah. of Baghdad. It's on the banks of, yeah, on the banks of, of the Euphrates. So it's in this sort of cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia, between the two rivers. Yeah, the so Tigris the other river being the, the Euphrates. Tigris, yeah. And it's got a thousand year old, more than a thousand, and they're very conscious of their own history, aren't they? Their own heritage and stuff. Yeah, well, they they um, they come to think of Babylon as being kind of the, the very earliest city um, that it, they see Babylon as a gift from from the kind of the junior gods to the uh, the senior gods. I mean, actually, they also confusingly at the same time are aware that there are other cities that are actually much older than Babylon. And so they have this kind of dual sense of time. But basically everyone in Mesopotamia by this point sees Babylon as the kind of the great the great fulcrum of of the world. It's it's the center of the world. It's the center of time. Uh, it's the great home of culture. Um, and that's tr- as true f- for the Assyrians as it is for the Babylonians themselves. So that is, that's the key to its status. They've been occupied lots of times and attacked lots of times by different rising and falling, the Hittites, the Kassites, all these different... All these the, kind of guys, yeah. Yeah, all these guys who keep invading. They steal the god, Marduk, um, who yes. we mentioned in the introduction. <laughs> they take him off to their city and then inevitably he always comes back at some stage. Yeah. And Babylon then rises again. That's basically the story of the last 1,400 years of Babylonian history isn't it yeah so basically um the prehistory of of babylon prior to the reign of nebuchadnezzar is a a series of people with strange names turning up in babylon nicking the statue of marduk and the babylonians and getting it back all right very good so i think what we should do is we'll come back to that and do that in real detail in a future episode but let's um get back in with nebuchadnezzar so what century roughly are we in now tom we are in the 6th century BC. 6th century. So we are roughly equivalent with what? Um, with 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 the, the first that we know of the ancient Greeks, I guess? Uh, yeah, so, so, um, uh, yeah, so, so this is um, uh, Athens and Sparta are starting to emerge as, as major powers in Greece. It's the early years of Rome. And, and of course, you know, very importantly, there is, yeah. you know, the Persians are kind of gearing up um, they're still subordinate to the Medes at this point, but um, but at this time, Babylon 
is is greater, richer, presumably more sophisticated, more kind of politically important than any of these places. Well, whether it's politically more important, um, whether it's the greatest of power will be measured by what happens to it at the end of the century. But indisputably, it is the greater city, not just of its age, but of all time. There has never been a larger city. So there are about a quarter of a million people in the city. Um, and this is what the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar absolutely is. And so Nebuchadnezzar succeeds his father when, Tom? Uh, when about does he succeed him? That's a good question. Something like that? 605 uh, BC? La, 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 605, yes. Yeah, so there's a battle with the Egyptians in Syria. So the Egyptians are also trying to make a comeback at this point. Yeah. Um, the, the the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians. Nabopolassar dies in the battle. Nebuchadnezzar takes over uh, and the Assyrian, the Egyptians retreat. And it is this that opens up not just Syria, but the kingdom of Judah. Okay, let's south. come on to Judah in a second, because that will bring us into the Bible, which I want to talk about. But first, you mentioned the city. So yeah. the city of Nebuchadnezzar. So now we can, perhaps for the first time, really get into what Babylon is like, because we know, don't we? We have descriptions of, of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and we have a sort of sense of the topography. Is that right? We do. So we have um, we have an account by Herodotus who almost certainly visited it. Um, and as is normally the case with Herodotus, it's a kind of mix of um, kind of imaginary. You know, he's projecting Greek ideas about uh, yeah. society. Um, Don't tell me the founder of history is making stuff up, Tom. He's not making it up. But but well, so, so the, the, the classic example of this is um, talking about um, marriage and with the role of women in Babylon. And he has two, he, he, he cites two customs, um, one of which is that uh, daughters get auctioned off and all the good looking daughters get auctioned off first. And the money that is given for their dowries then enables the uglier daughters to be married as well and to be given dowries. And Herodotus really approves of this. He says it's a wonderful custom. Absolutely right. thumbs up from Herodotus for that. Um, but then there is the custom that he describes as the most outrageous of the Babylonian customs. And this is that every woman in the city, he says, has to go to the temple and offer herself up for money, for sex to anyone who wants her. Um, and they have no choice in the matter. Well, everybody uh, so, has to do this. Everybody. So even the kind of very grandest woman and, and Herodotus says that they arrive in litters and veils so that no one can see them. Uh, and then someone will come in and sleep with them and then they go off and then that's it. Their, their due is paid. Um, so there is... <laughs> There's there's debate as to whether that sounds you know, very unlikely. How, I would say. How, how how reliable is this? It it seems so. It seems to draw on what is a very ancient tradition of that the princesses dedicate themselves to a, a god called Shamash, who's the sun god. And there's evidence for this going right the way back to the very beginnings of Babylon. Um, but they're actually they certainly in the time of back of the time of Hammurabi, these women seem more like nuns than kind right. of temple prostitutes. Yeah, um, they basically seem to have lived under an obligation of celibacy um they uh they, they and actually they're kind of quite economically significant players well, there could be some annual ritual you know there I could mean, be couldn't there? there could be there could be so that's an, and we'll come, come again to this the the extent to which herodotus and other classical authors are just making stuff up from scratch whether they're misunderstanding things that they see and definitely with herodotus there's a lot of very very detailed factual analysis that is turned out to yeah. be very accurate and so that combined with the archaeology gives us a sense of probably of what nebuchadnezzar's city looked like okay well stop let's imagine you're herodotus or whoever you're mm -hmm. approaching babylon for the first time so you're approaching it across 
flat flat land. alluvial lands uh, yeah yeah um and the banks of the euphrates you see in the distance through the heat haze the first thing you see i imagine is the enormous city walls yes so the walls the walls are wonders so the seven wonders of the world um the the seven is sacred to the babylonian so it's possible that this idea which gets picked up by the greeks and then used recycled by classical writers that this is originally a, a mesopotamian idea right um and one of the wonders of the world in, in one of the lists, the walls of Babylon feature. And the Assyrians had, had hailed them as a wonder of the world. They are on a stupefying scale. They extend for three square miles. They're surrounded by moats. Uh, and these walls, and, and there are further walls. So there's a wall that's built by Nebuchadnezzar called the Median Wall, which is designed to keep the Medes out, which goes for 50 miles. So these are vast, vast fortifications. Yeah. Um, and they serve as a kind of symbol of everything that the monarchy is about. So they are, um, well, there's, there's an inscription by Nebuchadnezzar who, who says he describes the wall of Babylon as the primeval boundary that has been famous since the distant past, the firm frontier as old as time, the lofty area as high as the heavens, the strong shield that bars access from enemy lands. I mean, in truth, it's not primeval because they keep being sacked and keep having to be rebuilt. But the idea of the wall of Babylon as a kind of wonder really is very, very ancient. And, Herodotus is blown away by them and he describes they're blue Tom are they blue well we'll come to that they're crenellated so uh they're on a massive scale they're so broad Herodotus says that a chariot can can wheel around on the top but you also get this famous gate the Ishtar gate which um under Nebuchadnezzar has the kind of the famous blue and gold tiles yeah these are mud bricks but they're, they're sheathed in blue and gold um and we know about that because German archaeologists discovered them um, and and shipped them up and, and took them to Berlin, where you can see this kind of incredible reproduction of it. And it's a great double gate. And the Ishtar gate leads into um, what the Babylonians called may the arrogant not flourish, which was this great processional way. And you go in through the gate and, and there you have the palace, which is fittingly stupefying for the king of Babylon, everything you'd yeah. expect on a, you know, just Wow. And then you go down the processional way, and at the far end of the processional way, you have what was called the um, the Etem Ananki, which is the stupefyingly enormous uh, ziggurat, seventeen million bricks, hundred meters high, so as high as the Great Pyramid, uh, seven stories. Although Herodotus says it's eight, um, and this is the, this is the building that that had been sacked by the Assyrians, destroyed by Sennacherib, the Syrian king, and has been rebuilt ever since, and this is the construction of this great tower is what in the Bible becomes the Tower of Babel. So this is the Tower of Babel. I mean, literally, this is the, Tower, is the of Tower of Babel. And presumably, okay, so uh, some memory of it has made it into the Bible, into the Old Testament. Yeah. Presumably, is that because it was built by slaves who have, and, and a folk memory of people being enslaved and having to work on this building, do I you think? I, I don't think that's, no, I don't think that's the focus of it. In So in the in Genesis, it's uh, it's about the arrogance of the people who are building it. Right. Uh, and God punishes them, but, you know, the tower isn't finished. They they yeah. all, it will start speaking different languages. So hence, you know, a Babel. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it's essentially about the, uh, the the arrogance of the people who are building it, and that is, you know, we'll come to the the how how the Jews fit into this, but essentially all the you know every take that the the Judeans the Jews have on Babylon is that it is an oppressor. It's spectacularly rich. It's full of gold. It's full of purple. 
but it it, it is doomed due to kind its of arrogance. Cruel and tyrannical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's what the ta- and so and I I'm sure that the um that the memory of the Tower of Babel uh, the Tower of Babel is because this ziggurat was still in the process of being completed when the Judean exiles arrive there and right. see it, which we'll come to in a second. Yeah. Just another thing: Babylon's not just a city of power; but it's also a city of pleasure. Uh, the city whose people are glutted with wealth, the city of celebrations, rejoicing, and endless dance. Is that that is that your purple prose again, or is that uh... no? That's so that's an inscription, right, of the of the time, and it it reflects the fact that Babylon is sim- simultaneously a very ordered city. So there's a kind yeah. of grid pattern, but within those grids, there are kind of labyrinths. So you can completely get lost, and th- and that's where this you know its reputation as a city of pleasure comes from kind of fueled by the, by the Bible, but also by the you know, Herodotus' story of temple prostitutes and so on, and also by the image of the goddess Ishtar, who gives her name to the, the famous gate, who is the goddess of love, who is imagined as, as stalking the, the, the taverns. So if you have come in across the plain, you've gone through the gates, you're plunged into this incredible, presumably incredibly cosmopolitan... Unbelievably cosmopolitan. Maze I mean, it is, of it is, sights and smells and different languages and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest city in the world? By miles, it's the largest city that's ever existed on the planet. It's the most cosmopolitan. It's it's stupefyingly rich, uh, and it's it's incredibly sophisticated because you're starting to get banks. So we have the, the, there's a, record, a banking family called the Agibis, whose library has been found. You know, record of, of all their correspondence and everything, and it it it, it shows how the, the the Babylonian Empire is sufficiently large that this banking family in Babylon can have kind of outposts in in other cities, um, and it's the reason why Babylon works as a kind of um, you know a shorthand for a massive, multicultural, cosmopolitan, imperial, wealthy city where you can get up to all kinds of sexual practices that maybe you couldn't in a village. You know, Babylon is the archetype of that. Yeah. And, that, and that's the power of power of its myth. So it's the first, do you think it's the first city to have that kind of reputation as the kind of, by the sink of iniquity and a place of unlimited possibility? Well, it's difficult to know, but but the combination of, of the Greek and the biblical yeah. accounts of it are essentially what have, have have created that image of it that has survived they're able to do that because babylon has elements of that yeah i mean it is it is an absolutely stupefying place and it is actually the you know in the list of the wonders of the world it's the only one that has certainly two wonders maybe even three so there's a there's a kind of there's a famous obelisk that gets into some of the wonders of the list the seven wonders of the world the, the, the walls feature in a lot of the lists of the wonders of the world and of course, it's the most famous wonder of all. In fact, I, yesterday I asked Sadie, my wife, what do you think of when you think of Babylon? And she said, the Hanging Gardens. Of course. So, so yeah. the Hanging Gardens are the most enigmatic and the most kind of tantalizing of all the wonders of Babylon. But Herodotus, who you say went to Babylon, doesn't even mention them. He doesn't mention them. So did they? So what's the thinking with the Hanging Gardens? Well, Herodotus doesn't mention them. He, he, if he visited Babylon, which I, I think he did, uh, that would be um, about a hundred years after its fall and its conquest by the Persians. Maybe he didn't see them because the, the gardens are, are in a kind of palace complex, so you don't get to see them. But there's been no archaeological evidence for them at all, uh, and so there's there's been a very very um, interesting book written by Stephanie Daly, who I think is at Oxford, who argues that actually the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were not in Babylon at all. <laughs> The story is that, and we get this from Josephus, who is writing um, in the first century AD. He said he 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 says that it's Nebuchadnezzar who builds these gardens, 
And the story is, is that he has a median wife and that she's homesick for the mountains of her, her homeland. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds this great kind of complex. And the, 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 the thing about it is that um, it's, it's done on kind of steps. So imagine a, a bit like a kind of Greek theater or something like that going up in stages and that there are trees that are planted on the highest level of these, these tiers that are being fed by water. They must be fed by water because otherwise they can't reach into the soil. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're in kind of flower beds. And there's no evidence for this structure. No such structure has been found. No such structure has been portrayed in, in Babylon. I mean, it would be very, very difficult to do that in Babylon. But you do have portraits of this in Assyrian wall paintings, and you do seem to have kind of evidence for it. Um, and in particular, you have what, the kind of screw that gets attributed much later to Archimedes, that there's evidence for that having been developed by the Assyrians. The irony and, that the Assyrians of all yeah. people, the Babylonians, that the most famous Babylonian thing was probably Assyrian, you're saying. Well, I'm not remotely qualified to, to, to judge on on whether this argument is is accurate or not. I mean, I I read Stephanie Daly's book. I've, I've read it twice. I read it before doing this podcast. Again, I reread it. And I was completely convinced, but that's because I didn't really know enough to judge. But but uh, I mean, it's not just the, the Assyrians. It's Sennacherib, who's the guy who who flattened Babylon, so yeah. kind of really rubbing salt in the wounds. Um, and her argument is that when Sennacherib destroys Babylon, he says, "Well, Nineveh is now Babylon." Yes. So you could see how um how that would work and we th- th- there's a lot of, so herodotus is absolutely he he takes for granted that um that babylon is a part of assyria and that assyrians and babylonians are basically the same people you have a, a, a historian called diodorus who's writing um i think second century who says that um the the king who who built the hanging gardens was assyrian so in other words there's a swirl of yeah possibilities there um, and it's it's also possible that Nineveh was so the tradition is that Nineveh is wiped from the face of the earth. This doesn't seem to have happened. It does seem that there were palace complexes because we know that that later kings are going to Nineveh and kind of studying it, uh, you know, for examples of of how they can kind of model their own palaces and so on. So uh, who knows? But but I think it's a very very good argument that actually okay. it's not the Hanging Gardens of Babylon; it's the Hanging Gardens of Nineveh. Well, that's answered the questions by Simon Girdlestone and Dick of Axe, both who asked about their Hanging Gardens. Um, Dick of Axe's question, though, raises another issue uh, that hangs over the whole discussion of, of Babylon, because Dick of Axe wanted to know whether the gardens of Babylon were linked in some way to descriptions of the Garden of Eden. And he said, what are the links between Babylon and the Old Testament? Now, obviously, this is a massive issue. So the the the, the Jews, the portrait of Babylon and indeed of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's feast, the book of Daniel. Let's get into all that now. So why are there Jews in Babylon? Okay, well, first of all, should we be calling them Jews? Probably not at this point. So, Israelites? So no, they're, they're, they're Ju- Judeans. They're, they're the people of the kingdom of Judah. Yeah. So they have been the united monarchy under David and Solomon and so on. Then it has split. Um, you'd get the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes of, of – uh, so there are the 12 tribes of Israel. 10 of those tribes form the kingdom of Israel. That then gets destroyed by the Assyrians. And the yeah. 10 tribes get carted off into exile by the Assyrians and they vanish. So the question of where the 10 tribes are is kind of abiding mystery. Two of the tribes centered on the city of Jerusalem survive, and that's the kingdom of Judah. And compared to Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, you know, it's it's a minnow. Yeah. These great empires keep coming along, kicking sand in the in, in the face of the kings of Judah. And so they're constantly trying to, you know, work out which, should, you know, should we side with the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, whatever. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's seen off the Assyrians. The, the Babylonians have seen off the Assyrians. They've seen off the Egyptians. 597, Jerusalem is conquered. The king gets taken 
with a whole load of, of Judean of noblemen. This is Jehoiakim. Is yeah. That, is that, am I saying that right? That's and and fascinatingly, his his kind of ration dockets have been found in Babylon. So he gets treated with with honor in Babylon. You know, he gets kind of put in a hostel yep. for defeated kings right. with all his, you know, all the Judeans. Um, they get given a, a, a kind of rations for meals and things. I mean, quite a lot. You know, he's he's treated honorably. Right. Um, and his uncle is installed as a kind of Babylonian puppet and he gets given the name of Zedekiah. And he's back in Jerusalem. Still. He's back in Jerusalem. Yeah. And he makes the fatal mistake 11 years after this initial siege of deciding that it would be a good idea to rebel against the Babylonians. Turns out to be a terrible idea because the Babylonians capture Jerusalem. They destroy Solomon's temple, you know, the temple that had stood at the heart of Judean life. Um, And in the words of the Book of Kings, they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and they bound him with fetters of brass and they carried him to Babylon. Right. But not just, so it's not just um, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah that are in Babylon, but a large proportion, or maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe a small proportion of the Judean people, because there's the sense of that they're in exile, right? Absolutely. So it's, so what, it's, what it's the, it's numbers the kind are of, we talking about? Hard to know, but it's, um, it's, it's certainly the kind of, you know, it's the elite. So it's the, the nobles, the priests, the scribes, um, yeah. you're not taking a load of peasants. And they've been what put in put in prison or just put in no, told a, a no, quarter of the city or what? No, so this is this is a common thing that that everyone in, in in Mesopotamia does is that when they conquer a people, they will remove you know the kind of the leaders and and take them to the capital. Um, well, not 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 just the capital. Some of them get kind of dumped in in kind of regional cities. So Ezekiel, right. who famously has the vision of uh, the bones coming back to life, he's he's not in Babylon, but clearly there are a lot of a lot, there are a lot of Judeans who are in Babylon. And so the question of what kind of influence does this have on on the writing of um, a lot of the books of the Bible is a huge, huge issue. Because um, are some of those books of the Bible, um, we're talking about books of prophecy, aren't we? Like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. Are they written in Babylon? Are they written after they've come back from Babylon? So Jeremiah is a prophet who has foretold the ruin of Jerusalem. And then he remains kind of, he, he doesn't get taken to Babylon. He just kind of hangs around going, everything's awful. Um, right. and having, but, but having prophesied that Babylon will, will destroy Jerusalem, he then says, and this is the key thing, and this is why perhaps the Judeans start to become Jews. They, you know, the, the temple has gone, but they don't give up their, their, their belief in their God. And indeed, their, their belief in their God seems to kind of sharpen and become more monotheistic as a result of the experience of being in Babylon. Right. Perhaps some have said, some scholars argue, because the Babylonians themselves are kind of moving towards a form of monotheism in which Marduk is enshrined as the one God. I think that's less likely than the fact that it's the, it's, it's the spectacle of Babylonian temple worship and gods and idols that instills a kind of enhanced sense of hostility towards idol worship because it's associated with Babylon. Those are two totally different versions, Tom. So one is the Jews that what become the Jews are copying Marduk. And the other is they are so revulsed by Babylonian religion. They're doing something different. Yeah. I I think that the the latter is, is much likelier um, because the hostility towards Babylon is 
absolutely palpable and it's it's jeremiah who 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 enshrines it most powerfully so you you quoted from the book of revelation the book of yeah. revelation is drawing on jeremiah's vision of the destruction of babylon that he hopes will come so babylon hath been a golden cup in the lord's hand that made all the earth drunken the nations have drunken of her wine therefore the nations are mad that's exactly the kind of idea that you get with the horror of babylon and then one of my favorite verses in the whole of bible yeah. babylon shall become heaps a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment and an hissing without an inhabitant. And that is a prophecy that, again, hangs over Babylon because actually the prophecies turn out to be accurate in the long run. Well, um, I mean, Babylon's been sacked so often in its history that, you know, you could reasonably predict that it would probably be sacked again. But, Tom, if I'm being very, very cynical and um, apologies to any listeners uh, who are displeased by this but you could say that this is a bit like the is this much more than the how should i put it the internet ramblings of somebody who's really embittered about some geopolitical development and they're saying we will get our revenge you know the equivalent of a kind of russian troll saying the west will pay for this or that or whatever i mean because jeremiah is basically wanting to see visited on babylon the same thing that has been visited on yes the kingdom of judah right absolutely uh and the judeans are, are simply not you know, it's not like the Greeks who in the long run will be able to, you know, Alexander will be able to cast his invasion of Persia as revenge for the Persians having burned the Acropolis in Athens. The Judeans have, there's no, you know, they're too small um, yeah. to have any prospect of that. And most most people in, in um, you know, who, who, who get, well, like the, you know, the 10 tribes of Israel, they just vanish and, and, and disappear. They get absorbed into the, the population of the city that they've been transported to. What's really distinctive about the Judeans is that that doesn't happen. And that the Judeans, although they seem to have been utterly humiliated, the temple of their God has been wiped out. It seems that their God has been, you know, caught wanting. All the, the, the kind of the furnishings of the temple in Jerusalem get taken to Babylon. Yeah. The Judeans do not give up on their God and they do not lose their identity. And if anything, their identity gets sharpened. And that is what's interesting. And it seems to me that their identity is sharpened by well, you can call them kind of the internet ramblings, but it's it's a kind of a sense that the only way that they can make sense of the horror of what's happened is to see it as part of the plan of their God, which is a kind of incredibly arrogant thing to yeah. do. And you're, you know, they're, they're nobody, they're kind of tiddlers. They're the kind of very, very small fish. Yeah. But they're saying that they end up saying that ultimately everything that happens to Babylon is the expression of the will of their God. And so the, the stories that you get, particularly in the book of Daniel, are a kind of fascinating distorted mirror held up to that. Well, this is what I wanted to ask about, because they have this really fascinating um, treatment of people like Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, don't they? Because on the one hand, they see him as a symbol of cruelty and oppression, of tyranny and of, and of, and of kind of power, of all that is evil about power. But at the same time, it's very clear that the Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument of God's will, that he has yeah. been picked by God to punish the, the people of Judah for their sins isn't he so he's so they're sort of saying you may be very evil but at the same time you're actually an instrument of our god's plan so you're yeah, just a tool and, yeah and and also that because of what nebuchadnezzar's done therefore he will be punished and that and and babylon will be punished and they're able to say that because they know what happens which is basically nebuchadnezzar dies you get yeah. this 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 guy called um nabonidus who is is not of the royal family but seems to have been a very distinguished general he's quite elderly when he becomes king um, he's actually the he's the the son of a, a, a priestess in the um, the Syrian city of Haran, where they worship Sin, who is a, a moon god. He's very keen on Sin, but more generally, 
Nabonidus, we mentioned him in the first episode. He's he's a, a great antiquarian. He seems to have decided that 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 Marduk's promotion to to kind of the rank of top god is um is historically inaccurate. And so he, he I mean it's very odd. He he goes off to um a place in North Arabia. A, a place called a place called Tamer, and he's there for ten years. And it's very strange, you know, what what is he what you know, why is he doing it? Is he doing it because um he thinks the gods have ordered it? Is he doing it because uh he he he, he hates Babylon, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it, he can't, you know, he doesn't want to have mix with, with Marduk. I mean is he doing a kind of Akhenaten equivalent? Um is he going there because um uh, Tamer is a strategic center from which he can build a great trading empire in Arabia, or is he mad? And yeah. we don't really know. But what we do know is that um this makes him very, very unpopular in Babylon, where he has left his son, Belshazzar, as, right. as regent. Um, and, and that this is, this is foolish because it, the, the Babylonians see the king's uh, obedience to Marduk as being the key to the functioning of the city. And they have this ritual every um, spring the, the Babylonian New Year, when the barley is is planted, where the king has to go to the temple of Marduk, and he, he has his ears pulled and he's slapped. Right. I then can he see why, you, again. Would, why you'd want to avoid that. Yeah, well, yeah, nobody <laughs> want that. And then he, you, you go in again, and, and if you cry, then that's a great sign because tears show that Marduk is pleased. So you right. really, you know, you're really getting slapped around. Um, Nabonidus doesn't do this for ten years, and so therefore, what's been going on while he's been off in in Arabia? is that the Persians under Cyrus the Great um, have defeated the Medes. They've defeated the Lydians, who, who, who rule basically what's now Turkey. Yeah. So Cyrus is very much the coming man. And Cyrus is a, is a master of propaganda. And he said so there's a famous, the Cyrus Cylinder, which some people say, you know, this is the, the first bill of human rights. It's no such thing. It's a very, very Babylonian text in which he's basically saying, I'm going to respect your gods. Um, and this means that that in the long run, Nabonidus proves powerless against Cyrus's invasion. Cyrus, because basically the people, there are lots of people in Babylon who are unwilling to fight for him. Yeah. And the story goes, it's in Herodotus, wonderful story, you know, sense of how vast Babylon is, that the, the, the Persians break in and Babylon is so huge that people in the city who are celebrating a party, as Babylonians do, don't even realise that they've been conquered. The city is so enormous. Right. So that's the Herodotian take. But of course, there's the famous biblical take on well, this story. Tom, let's take a break. Yes, let's do that. So, sorry, let's I'm take talking a break. too much. Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. Take a break and we'll come back and we will do the Book of Daniel and the extraordinary story of Belshazzar's yeah. feast. And then we will be talking about Babylon and its, its fall and its afterlife. See you in a minute. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, we are talking about Babylon. Um, Tom, I cut you off because we were just about to talk about probably the single most famous depiction of Babylon ever, which is the Book of Daniel. So everybody knows this. Daniel, well, they don't, do they anymore? But they used to. Uh, Daniel is invited to a feast with his pals, isn't he? And Belshazzar, who we mentioned before the break, has got all the looted gear from the temple. And he says, you know, tuck in. And they don't want anything to do with it. And then these words appear. Well, you can tell the story more. You tell the story in your purple prose, Tom. <laughs> no, you, no, go on. You, you, so so am I right in thinking that these, uh, this, I don't know, there's all thunder and lightning or whatever it is. And um, 
the words that appear on the on the wall, these sort of uh, only it's phantom hand, your phantom hand, exactly. And is it? It takes only only um, Daniel can read them. Only Daniel can translate them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, like so this this phantom hand appears and and writes on the wall. This is the writing of mene mene tekel upashin. Yes. Is that right? Like That's that. Right. Yes. And, and nobody can understand it. So Daniel translates that Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so that's the, f- the famous scene of the fall of Babylon, um, which has been, so there's a famous painting by Rembrandt of, yes. of um, Balthazar looking like a 1980s cricketer, <laughs> gazing in horror at this mysterious hand. Um, but also John Martin in the uh, the early 19th century, who did vast canvases, yeah, of huge that's cities, a very good one. lightning striking and idols toppling. <laughs> um, and and I, I think that that is an absolutely fundamental part of the kind of the mystique of Babylon is yeah. Is because of the Book of Daniel, which is written after after Babylon has fallen. When's the Book of Daniel written? Probably, so probably third century. I oh, think. golly, a long time after. It's so it's, it's 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 quite a few centuries after it, um, and it gives this distorted history. So Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who sentences Daniel to the lions. He sentences um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, who were three of Daniel's pals, to a fiery furnace. They both come; they all come out of that and survive. Daniel gets enshrined as um, an advisor, a kind of dream reader. To, um, to 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 Nebuchadnezzar, so he's kind of like the equivalent of Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat. Yeah, he is to Pharaoh. Um, then uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes mad. All oh, right, so no, but this... he didn't go mad though. In reality, no. So this is this is clearly Nabonidus. So this is this is tradition that Nabonidus has gone mad. Babylonian tradition that yeah. is then attributed to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and you again, this kind of brilliant description. The same hours the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. And William Blake did a, a famous yes. kind of illustration of yep. that. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And then you have this account of the fall of Babylon, where where Belshazzar, rather than Nabonidus, is is described as the last king and and gets it falls and the, the the medes and the persians take over and it, actually it's the persians uh and from that point on babylon is subject first to the persians yeah then to the greeks so the daniel story just to wind that up the daniel story which obviously proved enormously influential because it really enshrined in the kind of judeo-christian imagination the image of babylon as a place of power of corruption of hubris kind of great luxury of the feast and then looming disaster didn't it yeah but but that's written centuries afterwards and it's just a basically very very garbled version of history would you say it's it's holding up a a very distorted mirror and a lot of of so daniel's prophet so so uh, nebuchadnezzar is the guy who has the dream that bart van lu talked about um oh yeah you know the, the idol with the feet of clay yeah um and he has visions of um of, of beasts coming out of the ocean, all these kind of things. Uh, and essentially this is predicting that Babylon will fall, that the Persians will rise, then that the Greeks will rise. Um, in due course, it comes to be seen as, uh, as, as foretelling the rise of Rome. So this idea of the cycle of empires. Yeah. Or we'll um, come on to Rome later on. And, 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 Rome Babylon, and Babylon, interesting yeah, relationship well, in yes, imagination. And so Daniel is, you know, the, whoever's writing the, the book of Daniel is writing in the knowledge. Firstly, that the Babylonian Empire has collapsed and, and and that Babylon has been conquered by foreign masters, but also that the city itself is starting to go into decline. Um, 
So and that didn't happen straight away, though. Tom. No, it so doesn't. It absorbed into the Persian Empire, and it's still at the biggest city on earth at that point. Yeah, there's a rebellion under Xerxes, who's the king who invades Greece, um, and um, the uh, the Great Ziggurat is is very badly damaged. Um, but it's still, you know, unbelievably, it's the largest city still in the world. So when Alexander enters it, it's it's a very Alexander place. I mean, he ends up dying there. Well, I was about to say when he arrives. He's greeted by the townsfolk because they see him as a, some of them at least seem to have seen him as a, or pretended to see him as a liberator from Persian rule. Am I right? A bit like in Egypt. Yeah. I mean, of course. They're, they're, uh, they're, yeah. they're saying that, obviously, because he's yeah. standing there with his, with yeah, his with sword. His, with his, yeah, and his phalanx. I mean, yeah. um, of course. But, I mean, they're, they're used he, to that. It's, it's telling that that's the place that he spends a lot of time at the end of his reign. That's the place that he dies. Yeah, because it's not. I suppose it's 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 makes well, but also, sense because it's not Persian, not quite Persian, but a yes. bit Persian. Well, you think? I mean, I mean, a lot of so a lot of the cities that he's conquered, they they, they get renamed. They get given Greek names. Babylon yeah. doesn't. Yeah, Babylon is too famous. Um, and Alexander clears the, the the rubble that Xerxes left of of the the Great Ziggurat and is preparing to to rebuild it, mm-hmm. and that never actually happens. Um, and what then happens is that um, all that kind of region of of mesopotamia um becomes part of the seleucid empire so and, one, and, of, one and of the heirs of alexander and they never think about establishing their capital at babylon tom well they 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 so, so they build a new capital called modestly seleucia on, on the, the tigris on the, on yeah. the tigris yes um and th- there is um so one source says that uh, one of the kings orders babylon to be emptied and that the people should go to seleucia so this is, and, and and people say that this is where basically Babylon starts to to, to collapse as a city. Um, difficult to know. Um, there, there are counter traditions. So one of the one of the kings, Antiochus the Third, he he actually puts on the robe of Nebuchadnezzar when he's performing the the rituals that are required at the Esagila. So the Esagila certainly seems to to be functioning right the way up into the Roman period. Um, but basically, it it is. So, so Tra- Trajan, the, the Roman emperor at the beginning of the second century, um, who invades and briefly conquers um, Mesopotamia, he goes to to, um, to to Babylon and he offers sacrifice to Alexander there in the place where Alexander is said to have died. So there's clearly still enough of the infrastructure of Babylon there for people to work out exactly where everything is. But 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 by this point, it's becoming what Jeremiah had foretold. It is becoming a dwelling place for dragons and astonishment and an hissing. It's been deserted by the time. It's starting Trajan's... to become that, yeah. Right. Yeah. And do we know, before we start talking about the image of Babylon and its kind of cultural afterlife, do we know at what point it basically became an archaeological site? As in, I mean, I don't mean in the 19th century or something. I mean, at what point it was no longer inhabited and it was basically dead. Very difficult to say, but I, probably, I mean, probably by um, first or second centuries AD. Okay, as early as that. So I mean, there's, it, there's obviously never well, a there's, possibility there's, there's, of the, the 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 Arabs, you know, so it's, the, it or something. It, it, it's mentioned in the Quran uh, as as the home of two angels called Harut and Marut who um, teach sorcery. Right, but that's that's probably drawing on biblical traditions of Babylon as a, as a the great center yeah. of sorcery yeah um the, the certainly by the by the time of the arab conquest it's you know it's it's long long been abandoned yeah. um that there are so there's a kind of so basically what happens is that you know as we said before that build it because it's not built of stone 
but but of of clay and mud it kind of melts and becomes a kind of sludge yeah and people do remain settled on what had been one of the royal palaces outside babylon itself and that that remain that that gets called babyl so right the way up into the modern period so there is that, to that extent a kind of living continuity but otherwise the very site itself gets forgotten and by the time that european archaeologists are turning so actually in the middle ages there are jews who come because they want to see the site and they want to see the site not so much because of, of Nebuchadnezzar, but because um, lots of Jews have stayed in Babylonia. Yeah. So even though uh, Cyrus allows them to go back and rebuild the temple and live in Jerusalem and everything, um, lots of them do stay in Babylonia and it, it becomes the, the great center of Jewish scholarship. So it, it's, this is where the Talmud comes to be written. Um, and it's known as the Babylonian Talmud, the Talmud that is written in Babylonia. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a place that uh, visiting rabbis are very interested in. And they, yeah. so we have records of them coming in the Middle Ages and kind of rootling around and trying to work out where places have been. But it's not until the 19th century and European archaeologists that, that they're really able to start kind of pinning down exactly where the site was. But Babylon, I mean, it lives on, obviously, very vividly in the Western imagination, in, in the imagination of Christendom. Once you start digging into the Horror of Babylon, there's immense fun to be had there. Because, of course, <laughs> yeah. From Luther onwards, the Whore of Babylon was equated with the Catholic Church. And yeah. there's lots of Protestant propaganda showing the Whore of Babylon with the kind of papal tiara. The I think people like the the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, picked up on this later on. And obviously, in Rastafarianism, Babylon is equated really with the kind of... White the antithesis. It? Yeah, it's the antithesis of Zion. It is the... It is it is corruption. It is power. It is European colonization. The legacy of slavery. It is the police. It's authority. It's it's all the sort it's of the man. Yeah, it's the man exactly. But that what's so interesting about that is, am I right in thinking that reflects at the time of the the Book of Revelation was written that reflects an antipathy to Rome in particular. That Babylon there is Rome. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, so tell me, is that is that a common metaphor, basically, at the time? Do you think for people to would would people have referred to Babylon as Rome? Yeah, because it's draw it's it's so, so Saint John is drawing on the language of Jeremiah writing about Babylon. So we had all that stuff about you know Jeremiah talks about um, the Babylon as a golden cup making um, uh, the nations mad with its wine, and you have almost word for word in in book of revelation for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her the whore of babylon her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies so babylon at this point is a, a you know a great pile of mud yeah this is this is being written in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple by the romans um it's it's written the year of the four empires emperors has happened rome has been set back on its its foundations but it has looked briefly as though the empire might fall to pieces. Um, the, the temple of Jupiter in Rome has been burned. So the Romans themselves have lived with a kind of apocalyptic sense that things might fall to pieces. Yeah. And the book of the book of revelation is describing a vision of the fall of Rome and Rome as the archetype of power. So it's everything that we've been talking about in the context of Babylon, that it's, obscene sexual practices um it's incredible wealth so the thing about the merchants uh, i mean what you know it, it's a very very economically literate piece of writing right the book of revelation it absolutely understands that it's trade routes and tribute that feeds rome 
that feeds Babylon, that without these, Babylon will be nothing, that it's not yeah. self-sustaining. Um, and it describes how it's it's the object of of kind of universal lust and desire, that people come from around the world to the city because it is so stupefying and beautiful and amazing and overwhelming and impressive. And that's why it's a whore. Yeah. It seduces you. Um, and and that that's why the, the chain of connection is Babylon, the Babylon written about by Jeremiah and Daniel, yeah. then becomes the, the, the Babylon that is Rome in the book of Revelation. But the power of that idea of the great imperial city that is oppressive but will fall, you can absolutely see the appeal of that to say to, to you know to Rastafarianism or to in fact to it I mean I I would I, I would go so far as to say that um that the anti-imperialism that today people in the West take for granted is you know it's up the ultimate roots of that lie in the books of Jeremiah and Revelation. And the well, attitude- I was just thinking Tom we did our nine eleven podcast, um the attack on New York. The idea of I mean, isn't that how Islamists might think of New York? A city of great vice, a city of terrible, of luxury, of power, of yeah, and, and to attack, but it will fall to attack it to bring down the symbols of power. Yeah, so 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 in the Quran, there's lots of descriptions of great city. I mean, the, the Quran does not go in for, for, for the kind of the the, um, the the naming of of geographical places that the Bible does, but it's evident that a lot of these kind of images of of cities it says that get destroyed by god and fall is drawing on that kind of biblical imagery and as i said babylon itself gets named in the quran but i think i think in the west specifically the the idea of the anti-imperial the idea that uh imperial capitals must fall and this is good you know it's 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 inconceivable without that biblical inheritance but also you know i mean rastafarianism is consciously rooted in it but also tom that image that you so often see you see in blockbuster films you see it in all kinds of sort of um, cultural products that seems to me drawn directly from Belshazzar's feast. I mean, you've seen it a thousand times in films without thinking about it of the, of the, the, the cutting between the film, the, 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 the footage of the, the rich and famous at some party enjoying a nemesis, yeah. you know, being upon them as sort of the fall of Gotham city kind of thing. Well, I mean, that's very, Bel- that's very book of Daniel, isn't it? Well, so it's Griffiths, isn't it? I mean, intolerance that we, we talked about in the 1922 episode that i mean he literally rebuilds babylon yes <laughs> i mean he goes out into the desert and rebuilds it yeah but for, for that and and um you know actually saddam hussein does as well so saddam hussein kind of tries to rebuild babylon and yeah we had a couple of questions about saddam hussein actually you know uh, to what extent do do um the legends of babylon how much are they part of Iraqi identity today? Are they part of Iraqi identity? I'm not massively convinced they are, but maybe I'm. Well, no, they 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 are. They so they were promoted by um by Saddam in his more secular stage because Babylon is something that um that all Iraqis can feel a sense of identity with. So yeah. uh, Sunni and Shia and Christians and Yazidis and, and and Jews and and everybody can kind of have a sense of it uh, of it in the past. Um, and and there's an obvious kind of model for a, a, a Mesopotamian, you know, an Iraqi strongman in the figure of Nebuchadnezzar. So when Saddam, re- you know, kind of did his his rebuilding of of Babylon, because there's nothing really to see in Babylon. You know, people turn up and there's you know, a load of dust. That's so, me with all archaeological sites. Tom. <laughs> so so Saddam wanted you know to provide something that was slightly more impressive, and yeah. so a lot of the kind of the mud bricks are stamped. You know, just as Nebuchadnezzar had had his name stamped on the mud bricks, Saddam does exactly the same. Um, 
and and one of the reasons why the Islamic State, when they then move into northern Iraq, why they demolished the Assyrian monuments, is because they want to get rid of anything that provides Iraqis um, with a reminder of the pre-Islamic past. Yeah. So, if, so for the Islamic State and for a lot of, of devout Muslims, national identity is false. It's a distraction from the identity you should have as a Muslim. And particularly an identification with a past that is Babylonian is kind of shocking. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of what's going on. I mean, of course, the, the Americans, um, they also played their part in, in, in a further destruction, of further fall of Babylon. Because having um, after the Iraq war, having occupied Iraq, they then built a huge tank park on the site of Babylon. I mean, in the, the heart of the archaeological site. Yeah. And so the, the, the remains of the, um, you know, the great processional way that joined the Ishtar Gate to, uh, to, to, to the great ziggurat, um, they were kind of driving heavy vehicles on it. It's all, you know, all the mud things have crashed. Well, think, I mean, think of all those buried cuneiform tablets, Tom, crushed yeah, under yeah. the wheels of the... Yeah, there's so a terrible was, metaphor there, isn't there? Yeah, so Babylon has fallen again. Well, do you um, know what? When I was a student in Oxford in the 90s, there used to be, I used to walk on my way to the library, there was graffiti on the wall, Babylon must fall. Um, but that's obviously reflecting the Rastafarianism and the reggae. Because obviously Bob Marley, the kind of reggae, has preserved the image of Babylon as hubristic, corrupt, luxurious, oppressive, at a time when, you know, knowledge of the Bible yeah. among the public at large is probably less than any point since, you know, the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Which raises um, our last question, Tom, because I think you've done an absolutely masterful job. I, and I know you've carried, well, I was about to say 80%, but it's probably about 98% of the load of these podcasts. So Tom, he, Dave Walters asks, I'll, I'll cut his question down. He asks very simply, where did Boney M rank in the pantheon of historians? Well, the, um, so it comes, so, so by the rivers of Babylon, um, it, it comes from one of the Psalms. Yeah. Uh, and it, it describes the, um, the exiles weeping, uh, you know, the rivers, I guess, you know, it's the canals and, and the Euphrates. Um, and I think, I think that idea that there is a kind of dignity in exile yeah. is, you know, a dignity in defeat is incre- has been culturally incredibly, incredibly important ever, ever since. In a, I mean, in a way, the, the, the greatest victory over Babylon is that Babylon is now dust and the Bible is still read. Yeah. It, and there is a manifestation there of the kind of the, – the core biblical teaching that you know the future isn't always with the strong that yeah. perhaps the weak will, will will overcome it but what there isn't in in the boney m song it it doesn't uh, quote what is um the final uh, the final line of um of that psalm which is one of the most terrifying um in the whole of uh in the whole of the Bible. So you have, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. So, you know, you, you have destroyed our temples, your temples will be destroyed. Yes. And then the very last line of that Psalm, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. So I, you can kind of see why Boney M didn't put that line. In yeah. song. Well, you can also see it doesn't, I mean, it, yeah. certain reticence in including it in church services and, so on to this day um but but i mean there's but but i think that you know that 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 ver- that verse perhaps more than any other really takes you back to the to the to just what was at stake i mean just the terrifying quality of the of the world 
that you know sixth century babylon was ruling yeah. it was one that was so frightening um and it's it's glamorous and it's beautiful and it's stunning and you know the the, the fantasy of it haunts the imaginings to this day but that predatory quality is is also so frightening well okay that's a perfect note on which to end tom we've got some great predatory quality coming up next week because next week we will be talking about the vikings in the east um of course the foundation of the um states of russia and ukraine so a very very topical um, very topical subject and we'll also be talking about smuggling and tom will be doing some excellent smuggling voices (laughs) so no pressure tom we will see you all next week from both of us goodbye goodbye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.